Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We're a movement of men in central Indiana pursuing meaningful friendships, faith, and character. If you'd like to learn more about us, the facility we're building designed for the energizing and growth of men, or would like to financially partner with us in our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. Let me start tonight with a couple of thoughts about our study this season. As Christians, you know, we're called to love and follow Jesus. We can't passionately love and pursue a person we don't know, though. We can't trust him if we don't know him. But trust does come when we spend time with a person and we learn about their life and understand what's shaped them, what's, their, what's made them the way they are. So to know Jesus, we must know about his heritage and his culture. And tonight we started, we began a study of the family from which Jesus came. This story of David will open our eyes to another part of the life of Jesus and deepen our love for him. We will see a man who is most often compared to Jesus. David was. Mary, the mother of Jesus, came through the line of David. David lived in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And the city where Jesus spent a great deal of time, Jerusalem, was called the city of David. And by studying David, we will get a much deeper understanding of the man, Jesus. To do this work, we're going to ask you to read a fair amount. You already saw that, right? Um, so there's some reading. But these stories are true, you guys. They're stories about real people. These are real lives. And they read quickly. They don't take a lot of time. It looks like a lot, but don't worry about it. Honestly, it's a lot more like reading a magazine article. Don't let it intimidate you. They're really interesting. And if you don't get the work done, don't come here and beat yourself up or say, I'm just going to stay home. That is the worst thing to do. If your sheet is empty, it's okay. Come. Because you can hang out with your team and get to know your guys and answer the personal questions and be part of that group. You being there matters. We want you there. So don't worry about what's on your sheet, all right? I also believe a critical part of developing a love and intimacy with Jesus comes by studying the Bible with other men. You know, we struggle to make friends. and We have a hard time as guys staying connected. We have a natural tendency to be isolated and we like to run alone. Bible study with other men slowly opens our hearts to emotional connections, which have a significant impact on our intimacy with Jesus. They're deeply connected. Love of your brothers and love of God happens simultaneously. The Apostle John said these words, if you do not love your brother, you don't love God. Bible study with other men that fosters brotherly love is a crucial element to to developing a love for Jesus, a love for him. Heart of a Man is focused on creating a community of men committed to studying the entire Bible and doing it together. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these precious men, and and I pray for this time now, Lord. I pray for this time, Lord. Help everybody just turn off their phones and disconnect for 20 minutes. And Lord, 20 minutes, we're gonna give you us. Father, let us hear your voice. And Jesus, please don't let my words and my inabilities and my distractions or whatever I do pull guys away from you. Holy Spirit, let them hear you speak. In your name I pray, amen. I remember the first time I stood at the top of a steep mountain, harnessed and connected to a rope, learning to repel. I was told to turn, face the sky, with my back pointing towards the ground and to take my first step backwards. And I was scared to death because I was on a very tall mountain. And I kept looking back and they said, stop looking back, take a step. 
I'm like, that's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die. And they're like, you gotta take the first step, man. And you gotta trust in your bolle, and you gotta trust in your equipment. I'm telling you, I was so stinking scared. I also remember the first time I went scuba diving. It was the very first time I'd gone 20 feet below the water. And about 20 feet, I'm looking up, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, that's a long way up. And I started what you guys know that scuba dive, I don't scuba dive, it was, I only did it a couple times, and it was terrible. Um, so, but I got about 20 feet, and I, I started breathing super rapidly. My heart's beating out of my chest, and I'm freaking out. I'm like, if, if, if this thing doesn't work, that, I don't think I can get to the top. I'm going to drown. And I was panicking. I had this deep fear come over me. Now, fortunately, something happened, and I overcame that fear, and I trusted in the people and the equipment. But in both cases, I did do that, and I ended up having a great time. But when I look back at those situations, what I had to do was I had to overcome my fear with trust. I had to trust. Can you remember feeling any of those types of fears like that? One of my most difficult challenges has been to believe that Jesus loves me, to truly believe that I can trust his love. I get deeply afraid I'll be hurt, abandoned, or won't have what I need to survive. And because I don't always trust God will provide, I spend a good deal of effort trying to get the admiration of people around me. I work tirelessly to make sure I have all the money I need. I put a lot of energy into every area of my life to feel valued and worthy. And you know what? That same issue manifests itself in my marriage at times. I've struggled to truly believe that my wife Susie really does love me. And it can show up at random moments as intense fear. For example, if I see Susie trading posts on Facebook with other oil painters, which she does often, I'll sometimes walk by, I'll just take a quick look, see what she's doing, and once in a while, I'll see some guy on there that she's posting with, and I'm telling you, I don't know if any of you have had that fear, but it just, it like takes the wind right out of me. My chest locks up, I'm like, oh my God, there's some guy on Facebook, and you hear about all these guys losing their wife, oh my God, and I just, I mean, it just, it literally scares the tar out of me. I mean, just completely frightens me to death. But I gotta tell you guys, Susie has never, ever, once given me an ounce of reason to believe that that fear is completely unwarranted but because my heart does not fully understand how to trust the love of my wife i can be overtaken by those feelings and they can last for days how has a lack of trust in the love of god affected your behavior you know a man never trusts in the love of a man who never trusts in the love of jesus is always chasing someone or something to tell him why he's valuable, what he's worth. In the story tonight, we see Saul deeply struggling with trusting God. His lack of trust was, in fact, the launch point for the kingship of David. In Samuel, 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 10, the people of Israel demanded a king because Samuel had appointed his sons to lead. But unfortunately, they were crooks. And the people they were supposed to lead demanded Samuel replace his sons with a king like what they saw in the neighboring pagan communities. You know, we're not told why Samuel's sons both turned out so bad. But based on Samuel's schedule and the amount of time he traveled, the odds are very high he was not around much to influence his sons as they grew up. 
You know, while it may have been a cultural norm at that time for women to take the primary role for raising children, it's really hard for me to justify his poor parenting based on a busy work schedule or some cultural norms. Let me digress just for a minute, you guys. The current data very strongly predicts that men without dads actively involved in their life have much higher chances of going to jail, mental health issues, educational deficits, low income, substance abuse, and suicide. Samuel allowed his leadership role to dominate his time. And while we want to give him a hall pass because he was a great spiritual leader, when a man has children, he must make being a father a top priority, no matter what his calling. And I would argue raising godly children is in fact the top priority God commanded in the garden before the fall when he said, multiply and subdue. Unfortunately, some sons rebel no matter what a father does. And guys, I know some of you guys have had those sons and I hurt for you, I really do. But on the whole, it's far less likely a son will fall apart when his dad is active in his life and teaches him to love and follow Jesus. I've found there's a few things that help boys find Jesus. First is building a good marriage with a woman who loves Jesus. When boys see their dad truly love their mom, mm, they trust their dad's going to love them. They also get the huge benefit of two Christian parents working together. And second, sons do well when they have time to play with their father. And that doesn't always mean competing, guys. In fact, a lot of times that can be detrimental. That means laughing and having fun and discovering during playtime what really makes your sons tick. Lastly, our, our sons need to see us balance family, work, and serving the church. They need to see how a man of God models the importance of all three by watching their dad struggle with those decisions to prioritize and to figure out what to do and when. Men, our sons learn to trust God when they know they can trust their father. Dads, what early indicators are helping you see if your children trust you and are actually following your lead? Last week, a movie called Knowing the Father was introduced in the theaters. It's a short documentary hailing the incredible value of fathers in the lives of the children. I would highly recommend taking the time to go with your family this week. And one last thought on this topic. Every person is accountable for their choices and their actions. And at some point, every young man must face whatever handicap he was given in his childhood. And be assured... Most of us will get something from our dad that we will have to overcome. You must decide who you want to become and stop blaming your parents or your childhood for the deficits in your character. I'm not saying the process is easy or quick, and it can be hard and takes a lot of years. And if your dad was a source of pain and trauma, you're going to need some help from a pastor, a counselor, or a group of guys, and you need to start getting that work done. But the first step is to stop making excuses and accept responsibility for your life. What's one step you can take tonight to begin moving past your handicap? Now back to this main story. Samuel anointed Saul because God directed it and God sent his Holy Spirit to work in the heart and the mind of Saul. And as we see later in this lesson, God will ultimately fire Saul. It's hard to explain why God places him as king. But one possibility is that he tried to reveal the sinful hearts of the people that were demanding a king. 
In Romans chapter 1, if you read it carefully, Paul repeats this same thing over and over. God gave them over to. When you choose to ignore God and pursue your own desires, God, at some point, may give you over to the sin you want to pursue, allowing it to run its full course. And this progression will ultimately reveal the depth of evil in your heart, giving you a clear picture of your sin. And at that time, you've got a choice. You will either repent or you'll turn away from God. So what failure in your life right now might be the progression of a sinful desire God has allowed you to pursue that you may be blaming on something else? The other reason Saul became king was because the people did not allow God's plan for when they made these decisions. They didn't follow it at all. In 2 Chronicles 7, we see that plan. God said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. There's the play. He gave it to them. They never prayed and asked God for a new leader. Never. The people did not seek God for his forgiveness, for his advice, his help, or his choice in this role. They didn't pursue God at all. They chose instead to follow their pagan neighbors. And God gave him over to that type of a leader, a man with a great physical presence and a burning desire to be loved by people. Samuel warns the people that a king like that would exploit them, their families, and their farms. He rebuked the people for wanting a king and rejecting God. And Samuel makes it very clear, the people will get hurt by having a king like Saul. And in fact, we'll see that happen. But let me ask you this, what recent decisions have you made without God? that may actually be at the root of unfavorable circumstances in your life or may be hurting you or your family and friends right now. What decision have you made without God? Carefully look at those. They often turn out poorly. In 1 Samuel 15, God told Saul to kill all the Amalekites. God wanted them completely destroyed. They were enemies of Israel. Hundreds of years earlier, the Amalekites tried to stop the Jews from entering the land God had promised them as they returned from Egypt, and they slaughtered the Israelites in merciless ways. God wanted them destroyed because as the, as the people, um, as, as he looked at them, these people hated the Jews. They were trying to thwart God's plan. When evil like this reaches its full potential, God destroys the people. That's what he does. In Genesis 6, we saw it. God destroyed all mankind except Noah and his family because everyone was full of evil. And then not much later in Genesis, again, we see God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the exact same reason. The people had turned from God, living grossly indecent, amoral lives. Sounds like America. In Revelation, Jesus will return and will destroy all those that do not believe in him. Every single person will die. Guys, how people die is God's decision, not ours. And you may think these stories are gruesome, but God decides how people will die, not you. God said in Ezekiel 33, he takes no delight in watching evil perish, but hopes all people will turn from their evil ways. God does not love watching evil people die. It's not his heart. He wants people to repent. God will use every means, a flood, a fire, his son, individuals, a military to destroy people who he deems need to die because the evil in their soul and in their culture has reached its full potential. 
and stands in the way of God's plan to redeem his creation. So while we wring our hands over the gruesomeness of these stories, remember this, denying God leaves all people in the crosshairs of a just and loving God. For love to prevail, evil will be destroyed by God because God is love. That's hard for people to wrap their minds around, but that's the only way for love to prevail is for evil to be destroyed. And Saul disobeyed God in that commandment and kept the Amalekite king in his best livestock. And this was a tragedy in God's eyes. His heart was broken. Saul did not do what he was commanded. And after his great victory, he went to Carmel. Of all places. And somebody in every group said, and built a roundabout. So when you see a roundabout, think about Saul going to build a monument to himself to reward himself and to get the praise of his people. Remember the story. Saul was consumed with making his men like him. He wanted people to praise him. He did not trust that God would take care of him. When Samuel confronted him, Saul blamed his men and made excuses to sound as if he he was going to do something really good for God. He was going to make prime sacrifices, not little ones, even better ones with grade A beef that he had set aside. This is really sick stuff. And God rebuked him saying, Saul, I want your obedience, not your sacrifice. The story revealed again Saul's desire to be recognized and admired by the people he ruled. His heart was deeply afraid of people, not God. And even though the Holy Spirit was upon him, his fear of men and need for approval overrode the voice of God. Think about you. When do you let the voice of God be overridden by your need for approval? What at times when we see this, we ought to just say, man, I need to wake up because as a Christian, I do this too. I often do this. I want to be admired. I want people to love me. And then I turn around and come to church and I donate money and I give time and I think God's good with me and God's like, I can see your heart, Bill. You can't hide behind that time and that money you donated. This should be a stark warning to all of us. It is to me. God wants my obedience, not my sacrifice. Unfortunately, I have a hard time distinguishing between the two. And what's hard for me is sometimes I look at it and go, who was that sacrifice for? Was that for me or was that for you? And isn't it tough sometimes, you guys, where you're just staring at yourself going, what, what, did, what did I just do? And you really know, I really just wanted to look good. I wanted somebody to approve of me. God sees that. He looks at that and he's so disappointed. God withdrew his Holy Spirit from Saul and made it clear Saul would be removed as king. In fact, Saul would die in battle and ultimately be replaced by David. Saul would live a life of depression and anxiety filled with fear and emotional trauma. And this is at the heart of the lesson tonight. God wants us to see the difference between a man who truly accepts and completely believes in God's love compared to one who lives in perpetual pursuit of the approval of men to establish his self-worth. He shows Saul time and time again the condition of his heart. And every time Saul made a choice, He chose to pursue the affection of the people instead of trusting in the love of God. Saul constantly ignored the Holy Spirit leading him, denying the Holy Spirit 
is what Jesus called blaspheming the Spirit, and that's the unforgivable sin. And this led God to withdraw his spirit from Saul and allowed an evil spirit to take up residence. Men, we must apply this lesson to our lives. Well, as Christians, we cannot lose our salvation or the presence of the Holy Spirit, and you know that. Our life choices to please people will place us in a very real physical, emotional, and spiritual deficit. It has an impact, and it's bad. The power of the Holy Spirit can get dormant in us, and then we start to hunt for men's praise, leaving us vulnerable to our own thinking and our minds and following the American culture, which is absolutely the worst thing you can do right now. We flirt with this very dangerous doctrine, the idea we can, in fact, accomplish enough to feel valuable and get others to say we're valuable and to believe ourselves that we're valuable. Our works can get us there. We can do it without God. The reality is the only thing we can accomplish that is good comes through the power of God working through us. That's it. Naturally, each of us is filled with evil thoughts and selfish desires. Left to ourselves, what we produce are accomplishments, listen to this, that lead us back to worshiping who? Ourself. And every time we go there, we wake up deeply depressed and wondering why these accomplishments feel so stinking empty. Because you are all that you see. Think about this for a moment. What have you recently accomplished that has caused you to feel deeply loved by Jesus? Dear friends, God wants us to simply believe with total faith that Jesus loves us and allows our heart. He wants our heart to say, that's all I need. I'm free and I can live. I don't have to prove my value to myself or to anyone else because you love me. I feel that in my soul. That's what he wants. In chapter 16, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse to examine his sons for the role of king. And Samuel likes the firstborn for his age and stature. God tells Samuel that none of these boys are the men God wants and makes it clear that Samuel is again looking at their appearance instead of their heart. God wants the heart of man to look very different than the heart of Saul. After presenting his seven sons, Jesse reluctantly brings his youngest son David from the sheep pen, and as soon as David appears, God tells Samuel to anoint him as the future king. God then fills David with the power of the Holy Spirit. But think about that scene. What criteria have you been using to pick your friends? Would you have chosen Jesse's son or David? The scene changes immediately to reveal that God has removed the Holy Spirit from Saul. And the rest of this story about Saul is the story of a man who no longer carries the power of the Holy Spirit. And think about you without the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You look a lot like Saul at times. Saul, demanding help from the depression and anxiety that Scripture assigns to an evil spirit sent from God. Now, let me digress, digress just for a minute. Job, James, and Ezekiel all make it very clear. God doesn't assign evil spirits to attack people. God does withdraw his protection from people who actively turn away from him and his Holy Spirit. Jewish writers assign that consequence of being attacked by an evil spirit to the decision of God to withhold his protection. I hope that gives you clarity. Likewise, God does not allow evil spirits to possess Christians. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us, not evil spirits. As the story comes to a close, the servant recommended David for his musical skills to help calm the emotional trauma of, the, of Saul. 
And David's resume was presented. He was musical. He was brave, a warrior, well-spoken, handsome, and accompanied by God. Ironically, when Saul felt bad, his servants called on this man of God, filled with the Spirit, David, to come play music to help soothe Saul's mind. A A God that we love again shows his love and mercy for Saul. He gives him a door, an opportunity to obey one more time. Every time David shows up, there's a window saying, Saul, just ask for forgiveness, and never does he do that. And so begins the career of David. The broken man of Saul, who will never ask for forgiveness, enters the king, David, who always asks for forgiveness. David was the least of his family, and spent much of his time alone with the sheep and with God. That time alone as a shepherd taught him to trust in God for safety, for food, and for his personal value. He grew strong, learning to fight off lions and bears with his slingshot in his hands. He learned to sing and play a harp, and that's how he managed his emotions, and you can read it in his Psalms. This is what helped him work on his heart. God equipped David, and David recognized that God had given him everything. David used prayer to get answers and to get direction from God. David's need to know his value was fully met by God. He had no one else there. He was by himself with the sheep. David truly believed God loved him in the deepest part of his soul. He never had a need to find his worth from other men or from his own personal accomplishments. When was the last time you refrained from looking good because you believed in your heart that God loved you? When was the last time you refrained from looking good because you believed in your heart that God loved you? David is second to Jesus in the amount of text written about him in the Bible. David wrote 74 of the 150 Psalms. The Bible gives a tremendous amount of attention to David because in the Old Testament, Israel believed that David was the forefather of the Messiah that they're still waiting for and the standard by which all of their kings would be compared. David made Jerusalem the center of worship for over 400 years when he rescued the ark from the enemies and brought it back to Jerusalem. David's father was Jesse from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, just as the prophecy predicted. David was a poor, unknown shepherd in Bethlehem. David was anointed to be king in the city of Bethlehem. And now think about Jesus. Jesus was born a poor, unknown baby in a barn in Bethlehem, and the first guys to see him were shepherds. The mother of Jesus came from the line of David. The father of Jesus came from the line of David. David deeply loved God and knew God loved him. On the other hand, Saul lived with constant anxiety, worrying about what people thought of him, and never believed for a minute that God's love for him was the only source of his worth. That difference had a huge impact on where those two men ended up. The story tonight set a clear contrast between a man who fears people and a man who deeply trusts in the love of God. Brennan Manning captures my most compelling desire from this lesson. Hear these words. How glorious the splendor of the human heart which trusts it is loved. I pray this week you'll have one moment where your behavior will change because you will hear yourself say, I'm loved, and I truly believe it. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us we're loved. You do. And Lord, I'm here to confess I have such a hard time with it. I have such a hard time. Or for my own personal self, help me this week, Lord. I want to feel that in my soul so badly. Just a few times. Lord, I pray for my brothers that each of them will feel that love and that need to perform will just move away. And that need for something other than you will dwindle just for a minute so we can feel it, Lord, and experience you, Lord. We know you love us. Help us know, Lord. Help us know so that we may change and be filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the power to love men well. Lord, be with us now. Be with us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.